0: Thinking of my mom, my mom uh, went to heaven about 31 years ago. And so I, from time to time, speaking of time machines, I'll get in a time machine. I'll go back to that place where, um, you know, sentimental memories. They say the umbilical cord is never fully cut. We, we, We never really lose that contact with mom, whether here or there. Someone said that kid never really grows up until their mom dies. And I think there's some truth to that. One thing I reminisced with my, about my mom is that she had this perfume. It had a fancy French name to it, too. It was called L'air du Ton. It was called the fragrance of the times. And she would put that on. It was expensive. She would do a little dab here and a dab there. And we knew that either mom walked by or mom was in the next room because that fragrance would float through the room. And it was the thing that beautified her. It was the thing that reminded my brother, me, my my dad, about her. You know, we associated it with her. Well, I I wanted to tell you that a time came when she decided, I'm bored with this. I'm going to try something different. Why? Because it's a woman's prerogative, that's right. (laughs) Am I exaggerating? No, I'm not exaggerating. So she went ahead, she put the cap on, she put it in the medicine cabinet, and she got another perfume, she put it on. It was kind of like, what? this stranger in our home? She's wearing this odd fragrance. I said, Mom, would you put Lysol on for or something like that? You know, <laughs> something, something dumb a kid would say. It was like that. But see, the thing is, is that she just wanted a little change. And when it didn't suit her and the family didn't latch on or anything like that, she went ahead and she went back to the original bottle. Mm-hmm. And when she got the original bottle, she realized she hadn't screwed the cap quite back on all the way. What do you suppose happened to that perfume? Yeah, it's mostly alcohol. It evaporated. Exactly right. And I remember the moment when she realized that because I walked, I walked by her room or something or rather, and I watched her inhaling uh, that fragrance, the remainder of it anyway, because she couldn't, she couldn't put it on anymore. And this was long before Amazon. You couldn't exactly buy something. I know, in 15 minutes, boom, that car rah, comes screeching up in front of your door. You got exactly what you want, where you want it. We are such microwave Americans. Everything is microwave oven, microwave oven. It has to happen quickly. So anyway, is that I remember her sniffing that. And I remember how sad she was, because, and really how we were, is that this thing that we identified with her was... It wasn't easy to get. She could get it again, but it wasn't easy to get. And it was expensive, too. And I realized that something that was precious to her and about her was gone. Now, for a second, I want to carry that to the next extreme. Is that sometimes God will take something precious to us and he will shatter it. And he will shatter it by design. It seems like something precious is ruined sometimes by God by design because it brings about a result that God wants. And that's why I'm going to bring a testimony here and share it with you. It may resonate with some of you, but the whole purpose of me sharing this is you think, how on earth can I connect with somebody who needs something that's foreign to them? that perhaps they're not even really interested in, and sometimes, quite honestly, is that I've become a little tepid myself. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And that's one of the classic questions. It's one of the classic Uh, debates. I'm not going to confront that directly, but I am going to confront it indirectly. Did I pray? I want to make sure. Okay. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Take a look at verses 3 through 6, if you would, please. And I want you to notice something that's very specific about this passage, please. It's filled with absolutes. Take a look at this. Notice what it says. Follow with me, if you would. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of how much comfort? All comfort. Who comforteth us in all our tribulation. I was watching an anchor service one time, and I heard you preach on this passage right here about two years ago. I remember that. It just clicked into my head right now. It's an important passage. It's amazing. It says, who comforteth us in all our tribulation. Why does he do it? That we may be able to comfort them which are in what kind of trouble? What's it say? It says any trouble. By the comfort wherewith we are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation, another word for comfort, also aboundeth by Christ. And I looked at word aboundeth up and it means to superabound. It, it, it is a huge type of abundance. It's abounding above where you were at your best. Now I want to take you on a very personal journey. And my wife, Jessie, allows me to tell this. In fact, she encourages me to tell this because I'm going to share uh, a little bit about the death of my first wife. Her name was Jessie, we were mar- or Julie, rather. We were married for 13 years. And God took her home using a uh, brain aneurysm. And uh, it's, it's a night you never forget. But it happened 23 years ago this past month. And as I said, Jessie's very gracious to allow me to do this. And in, in fact, she knew Julie. And uh, Julie and I, were we both worked in radio at the time. And Jessie was a single girl working as a Christian school teacher in our school. And we were kind of high by, you know, we'd wave in the hallway at, at church. We went to the same church. And uh, I'm very careful to make sure that my Wife Jessie, my sweet mother of my two kids, she is, she, is my, she is my darling. I try to make sure she does not live with a ghost. But there's a lesson that came out of this. And I think posthumously is that Julie gets to share this beyond the fact of where she lives right now. And that's a good thing. It's amazing to me how God engineers life circumstances in ways that we never would have chosen, like that perfume. You know, if that, if that bottle goes smashing onto the floor and we lose the fragrance that we enjoyed, it was something that was destroyed, that sort of thing is done. But you see, in a life, in a human life, in the Christian life, the Christian world, is that God will do things that are perplexing to us. They're horrifying to us, they're heartbreaking to us, and we look for purpose out of it. He uses those circumstances to introduce a grace that we had never would have known had he not shattered something precious to us. And by the way, if you've never been there before, if you've never had a life storm before, it is coming. It'll happen. And the question is, is you have two divergent paths at, in, in that, there's one path where somebody loses someone or losing, loses, loses something of great value and one path says, done. Done. I'm out of church. You know, if God loved me and we put him on trial, yeah. he never would allow that to happen. Yeah. Look at all the damage he did. Look at all the people that were hurt. How can we say that God's a merciful God? He's a cruel God to allow something like that. That's some path that you can take. And I reckon probably the majority of people take that path. And I easily could have taken that path, and I wasn't above it. But God, in his mercy, somehow he retained or he contained something about me. I don't know what it was. It is entirely to his credit that it happened. And then you have another path that that splits, that says in your lowest low, in the shattered part of life, you're looking at that circumstance, and you're saying, God,
1: What's your purpose?
0: If you'll sustain me through this, if you'll help me through this, God, we've been through too much together. I know you too well. You know me so intimately. There's got to be a reason that this happened. Would you please show it to me? And would you sustain me through it? Because I got to tell you is the tide in grief will come in and the tide of grief will go out. But I want you to understand something, Is that, and this is really the name of this message, if you remember something, please remember this, is that pain is a qualifier. Pain is a qualifier. Because the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulations, why does he do it? That we may be able to comfort them, which are in any trouble. You're wondering, what does this have to do with Muslims? I'm coming to. But I want to give you a few details first on that evening, which created my first bridge going through a lot of this. As I said, my first wife's name was Julie. She was 35 years old, active, on the treadmill every day, active in radio, busy, great sense of humor, intelligent, a sweet lady. We've been married 13 years, and we lived in a small town in southern Maine called North Bridgeton. And a a a day came when she told me, she called me on the phone, she said, Bill, the weirdest thing happened. While I, was, while I was on the radio, I cracked the mic, I opened it up, and she says, when I spoke, it seemed in my head, in my ears, everything came out backwards. I said, huh? So anyway, we kind of chuckled about it, we thought, oh, caffeine, lack of sleep, whatever it was, and dismissed it, but... What was happening in hindsight seems to have been tied into that, the eruption of this vessel in her head that would come. The weeks passed, and on a Sunday night, I got home, and she had been diagnosed with the flu a little bit earlier, and she looked at me when I walked in the door, and she was ashen. I mean, she was just gray-looking, and she says, Bill, and she wasn't a hypochondriac. She wasn't the type that says, ah, I got a hangnail. Let's go to the hospital. She wasn't that. She looked at me. She says, Bill, she said, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but. I think I need to go to the hospital. And, of course, any husband worth his weight would stay instantly. Flag would come up. We jumped in the car. We took off. She had a plastic bag with her, and it's one of those snapshot memories that you have. she was retching into it until she couldn't do it anymore. And she, we finally got to the closest hospital. I jumped out at the emergency room, and I went over, and I remember the door being open and it's uh, Navy blue Ford escort. I't I don't know why I remember, I just remember, and she was there in the car leaning back, and I, I banged on the door. I said, "Hey, we got an emergency here. Could somebody come out, please?" And the three of these white coats they were talking together, one turned around and gave me the wave, grabbed a wheelchair, came outside, you know, walking, uh, not really sensing any kind of emergency. But again, a, a, a snapshot memory. It never leaves you. I walked to Jesse or to Julie's side, And as I'm looking there, and this this EMT uh, was was next to me, I remember her (laughs) gasping and exhaling what I know now was her last breath. At that moment, she left for heaven. And that's something you never never forget. And I remember looking over at the EMT when this happened, and this was on uh, January the 10th. Uh, 2000. And I watched his countenance change as he looked at her. And he says, get over there, get under her armpit and help her into the car. So we, we worked her into the, uh, uh, in, into the wheelchair and he pushed her in. I spent the next four hours praying on my belly, lying in that emergency room, begging God to do something while they worked on her to try to revive her. And during that time, dear friends came My pastor came, Pastor Gary Wilkins, two other friends, Rich Brooks, Steve Perkins. You remember the names of people that run to your side at a time like that? 23 years ago, I'll never forget them. And they were there and they were beside me and a whole lot better than Job's friends, I'll tell you that, but they did the first part just as they did, sat quietly, didn't try to comfort, didn't try to say anything, they were just there, grab and hold. Finally, four hours later, technician comes, he was tired, he worked hard, he looked at me and says, Mr. Flowers, I'm so sorry. It's just nothing we can do. I remember going back into that triage area, and there she was, and there was just a blanket. It was covered with blood. They'd done a tracheotomy on her, and her eyes were just glassed over. And I knew she was gone. I knew it was a shell, and I'm not saying this to try to muster up pity. But I'm here to say is that during, in that event, I couldn't see it at that time. God was there. He held me in his hand. But God was also in the future to where the healing, the help, and the comfort would come. He wasn't just there, but he was in the future as well, too, because God holds time in the palm of his hand just as he holds healing. And I realized later that pain is a qualifier pain is a qualifier. We can't answer the whys then. But I realized at that time is that God was already working on the situation but I couldn't feel it as the waves of grief were washing over. I remember sitting in the car, another flashbulb moment, and I remember the rain was spittling on the windshield at 3 in the morning and these lazy windshield wipers were crawling across the windshield in my pastor's car. And he says, right now, brother, he says that there are probably 50 people praying for you. He said by tomorrow morning there are going to be 500 people praying for you by tomorrow night, and he's saying that, and it's kind of echoing in the back of my mind, as I watch an ambulance going 35 miles an hour with the lights on, and I'm wondering, no siren, not surprised, but why do they have the lights on? It was those sort of weird thoughts that would go through my head, and I had to remember, as I would learn later, the value of this passage in the Bible. Mark it, remember it, the God of all comfort all comfort, all comfort, who comforted us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. Why is it that God would tie us to a unique ministry? Why would he do that? Is sometimes is that God is going to have to shatter something in your life. It, has, it doesn't have to be a ministry to Muslims. It doesn't have to be a, a ministry to any specific people group. All I'm saying is, is for you to care, for you to have consolation, for you to have The compassion that makes a difference is that sometimes God will shatter. And when we get too complacent and too comfortable and when Christianity becomes business as usual and as the pastor grieves, and I'm not whooping on anybody, I know this isn't my church, but I'm just saying is that the empty seats remind us is that God is 100% entitled to do what he wants with our lives because when we gave ourselves to him, I mean, He called us first, and we know that. But when we gave ourselves, didn't we give give all? Isn't that what we signed on for? It comes at a price. And I'm not playing profit in anybody's life. I'm not doing that at all. Some of you already know what I'm talking about. Pain is a qualifier. Well, let me tell you about that first bridge. I, I, I promised it is that God, one of the hinge points that God creates between ourselves and those who need Christ is simply this, is that there will be sometimes a common bond, not because misery loves company, but because empathy is necessary to winning somebody. Shattered people can be conduits. Sympathetic people are nice, but empathetic people, are very important. There were no widows or widowers in our church at that time. I was all alone. People would walk a wide circle around me. What do we say to Brother Bill? What do we, how, do we, how do we deal with him? I'm afraid to talk to him. They thought I was like a porcelain cup. I'd shatter at the first touch, and that's how I felt at the time. But do you know something is that God was doing a work. He was doing a work. So as therapy, within three days... Julie's parents had flown out from Illinois and we were going through the funeral arrangements and I had to keep myself busy so I wouldn't go insane and I really thought I was going to go insane from the grief. So I got on the phone and I started to call up uh, some of our utility companies and try to you know, get her name, arrange to have her name taken off the billing system so the bills would all come to me and that was painful and helpful at the same time because it was a distraction. And here's what happened, is that I spoke with a telephone operator from Central Maine Power. And I explained that I had to rearrange my billing, and I gave the reason for it. And after caring for business, she went off script. It turns out she was a Christian, too. I heard in her tone something about this that wasn't just clickety-clickety-click. What is your last name? How do you spell it? It Clickety-click. It wasn't impersonal like that. There were pauses of silence in all the right places. And she explained, going off script, she explained that she was remarried and years earlier, she had lost her husband in an automobile accident, business call, they had only been married one week, we wept together on the phone for 10 minutes, I still remember it like it was yesterday, It was during a business call. And do you want to know something some callous boss could have said? That was totally inappropriate. You shouldn't have done that. Realize that this is a recorded business line, blah, 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 blah. She didn't care. She didn't care because she knew as a Christian that she had been called into something that was divinely orchestrated. And how many of us miss those appointments? Because we forget. Is that God has a purpose and a plan for sometimes shattering something precious in our lives. And it's all because there are so many others that need to hear. They need to hear. It was sacred ground to her. She was willing to lose her job to help me. You see, the difference between sympathy and empathy is the difference between just feeling something and knowing something. Let me give you an analogy. Say you go to a boxing match, and you're inside that uh, stadium or auditorium or whatever, and you're sitting there, and you're watching the two champs or... Would be champ, you know, slug it out. And you're wincing at the punches and you're seeing spit and blood fly into the air under the lights, and, and you say, oh man, that must hurt. Boy, that must be painful. And you're, 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 maybe you're sympathizing while you're cheering, bloodthirsty people that we are. But then you look to your right and you see, silhouetted against the stadium lights, you'll see a guy with this cauliflower nose, and he's got these beat up ears, and he's got calluses on his cheeks. And as he's watching, he's got a tear in his eye. And it may be because he's reminiscing because he misses the title and misses the ability to get out there and and punch. But do you want to know something? It's also because he knows what the other guy's going through. He knows how the underdog is feeling. He knows how there is a guy who is in the the, the closing uh, times of his career that's still fresh in his mind. And he's empathizing because he sees a pain, he knows a pain, and it's familiar. You see, we as Christians can do much better than sit in a dark stand watching other people. See, we've been given something. It's part of our commission. And the thing is, is that we can walk away without meaning to walk away. And I'm just here to challenge you tonight, is that loving people is remembering that pain is a qualifier. It's not there for us to mope and suck our thumbs. It's not there for us to become passive. We know the only way to coast is downhill. That's an old cliche, but it's still true. And I just want you to understand that God needs people qualified to minister to others through a bomb called suffering because hurting people need somebody who knows their hurt yeah. when sympathizing with their hurt isn't enough. And I knew that. And that's why when God shattered something in my life, I'm sorry, I didn't buy in. I'm not going to play super spiritual. I'm not saying that I got it because I didn't. But through passage of time with right counselors, with right circumstances, with people with special needs, namely they were fresh widowers that God put in my pathway, I began to see what God was trying to do. God allows bad things to happen to good people. Well, why do we dismiss God as cruel? His son's sacrifice was a model of his mercies. And we forget sometimes how much it must have hurt to go to that length, but he did it for our sake the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our infirmities that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. Well, bridge number two came. Bridge number two came when I was working at the radio station, working for Dan Wolf, getting it up on the air, cutting commercials and doing things. And there was a, a young lady, uh, her maiden name was Hooker, Bob Hooker's daughter, Amber Hooker. She was married to a uh, young man in his 20s. And while we were working on the air, uh, there was a basketball event and her husband had been at that event and I see a few nods of recollection there going on. And remember it too, is that her husband seemed to be in the prime of age and health, drops dead on a basketball court, young age, and her life was shattered. People were doing the same thing with her, walking the wide circle. How do we help Amber? Best thing's not to do anything. Just give her space. God will take care of it. What do we do here? What do we do there? God made an appointment. I wasn't ready for it. God doesn't send us a memo. He doesn't email us. He doesn't text us. He doesn't let us know when an opportunity is going to come. He just goes ahead and puts it in front of you, and he'll talk to you right then and there in his still small voice about what he wants you to do. Where do Muslims fit in, Brother? I'm coming to it. But I remember hearing that still small voice prodding me to talk to her. And she was sitting there, and everybody was being polite, and she knew what had happened in my life. She knew it, and there we were. I'd gone through it, she'd gone through it, widowhood at a young age. Mine had been six, eight years earlier. It was fresh to her. Several months had passed, not much. And I heard God poking me to say something to her. And I hesitated. I almost didn't say it. I was scared. But I looked at her, and there was glass on, on, on the windows in the studio and such, so we were given some space. They would usually step out, because when you're recording, you, you need silence in the room. So she was there, and I was there, and, and it wasn't inappropriate. I looked at her, and I said this. I said, you're feeling guilty. Because you have occasional days when you're starting to feel better, don't you? And she broke. She collapsed. I thought I was going to die. I felt like I'd taken an axe to her. She completely fell apart. But I found out within the same day that that was exactly what she needed to hear. And God used me only because I'd walked the same road. If I'd been some bum who brought that up to her and said, hey, you know, I got some advice for you, sister. And I told her that, you know, I wouldn't be worth the gunpowder to blow me up. But the fact is, is that God had used something that gave me a connection. Not a pity point, but a connection. And when I spoke with her, it gave her permission to move on. You see, she was feeling deep guilt because she felt it was her duty to God to live in solitude and misery after losing her husband. When the fact of the matter is, is that God was saying, He's here.
1: He's with me. I took him. Let's take the next step.
0: And she needed to hear that. And so I was given an assignment, not because I'm special, but because. I received a balm and a comfort that she was waiting for. Today, she's happily remarried. She has a family. And no doubt God has used her to do the same thing with others that God has carefully coordinated across her path. Now, I'm almost done, but I want you to understand something. To the, to the veterans of hardship in this room, to those of you online who might be listening to this, I simply want to say a couple things. Is it Number one, whom do you know who might be suffering alone needlessly because they haven't heard about your Christian victory? Is it time to speak up? Is it time to remember that... God can help you help them. Now, you need to be tactful. You need to be well-timed. It needs to be handled delicately, and it's a real good idea to go through your preacher and have him help you, but if you know of a situation, I think I could really be a blessing here, brother. I think I could be a help here, sister. I'm not quite sure how to purse the words or phrase it, but would you help me to help them? And then take those steps, and you might find that you save a life. Or, who in this room is still suffering from an old wound because you won't permit God to give you a ministry? I'm almost done, but I want you to understand that God uses injured people because they can give glory to Him. There's not a whole lot of use for people who are just so polished and perfect, bruiseless, no scars not a whole lot of common ground to connect with. And again, I'm not talking about pity parties. I've said that three times. You just want to get that cross. That's not what it's for. It's to show how God was there to help pick you up. Yep. Yep. Right. Let me give you a closing example. When I was in September, and I want you to see the Bible application here. I've given you two verses. I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to look at a very um, familiar passage before we finish. But I want you to understand something is that God has a very special place for the kind of people that I'm talking about. And here's where the Muslim connection will come in. I was, um, in September, I had the blessing of of visiting Israel for the first time. I went to Jordan, I went to Israel, and I got to actually walk through the, uh, the Valley of Elah to the water stream where David gathered those five smooth stones. I actually picked up five of them, I brought them back, that was kind of neat. I said, "Oh, well, these might be that." No, they weren't. Um, we joked about it. It's an interesting thing. For our missions conference, I put them up there on the pulpit, and uh, and 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 we actually sold them to raise money for missions. So that worked out real well. I didn't pocket a penny. Don't start thinking, man, those those missionaries will stoop to anything. It wasn't like that. But I actually go. I went there, and that ties in so well for this f- very familiar passage. And take a look at 1 Samuel seventeen forty. Everyone knows this. Even my front rowers there with the glasses. This guy with the glasses is telling you something you're going to sound familiar with, okay? Take a look at this. And he took his staff in his hand and shows him, there it is, five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a scrip. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And, of course, Goliath struck down. David was offered armor and sword beforehand. He refused them. They hadn't been proven. They hadn't been tested. And you know something else? Listen. They were man-made. That's the first detail we should take note of. They were man-made, and David didn't want to go down that road. He had already been defending the name of his lord to this godless Philistine, but there were certainly some other details too that we can take note of. Mm-hmm. Notice what he did use. He used five smooth stones. And notice where he found them. He got them out of the brook, obscured by the rushing, rippling
1: water, unnoticed.
0: No spotlight on them. Nothing there to shine a bright light and said, it would be these five stones. God directed, don't miss this, directed David to use something common and forgotten, common and unnoticed, to win one of the most famous battles in history. Those stones sat at the bottom of a brook for centuries, battered by the erosive power of water, In other words, they had to be prepared for a specific job through hardship. Smooth stones. Do you know the servant in this church or the servant in other churches who sometimes just seems to feel like they're playing out the clock? I'm here year after year. I sure want to be useful. Why didn't anybody notice me? And yet a day comes. When God uses somebody who's been polished smooth in a pretty uncomfortable long-term pattern
1: or method to fell a giant, a God-hater.
0: Do You know, David wasn't directed by the Holy Spirit to find jagged stones. They were smooth stones. Jagged stones might picture the bitter church member. The one who is bent off to the side. He says, I don't want any part of it. Leave me out of it. I don't, I, I've been treated unfairly. I don't want to be used. I've been trampled. I'm not going to be used. I've
1: been trampled.
0: God's looking at the people who've been washed smooth. It takes time. And you feel like you're being hit day after, day after day after day after day But It's not why you're here. It's a hospital with a steeple on top. God is preparing somebody for a big battle. Yep. Yep. Right. In this past year, only 84 people saved. It's special to them. 60 Afghanis, 14 Egyptians. And do you know something? It takes time. Those people have been worked over and worked on. And do you want to know something? Here's what I'm trying to say, is that your story is precious in the hand of God. Because your story, that story that's made you the polished stone, the smooth stone, unnoticed under the water, God knew where to find him. Sent David right to it. And the right time, the right day came. Islam is that giant, that Philistine, that loud mouth that critiques
1: Our faith. But I'll tell you,
0: a lot of people were watching that day and watched something humble, something simple, some little runt boy fling a stone. And I believe in my heart that God was talking to us through the ages and telling us, you be in your place. Mm -hmm. You be available. And you stop looking for attention because guess what? It's not going to come. It's not going to come. If we're here for attention, if we're here to do the strut, the peacock strut, guess what? You're going to get passed by. Not jagged stones. He used smooth stones. All it took was one. Them other four didn't really matter. They weren't necessary really. But guess what? God chose them. And I just simply want you to realize this, is that how we view a Muslim, and this is just a closing point, and I'm done with this, but how we view a Muslim is that we understand, is that we don't begin with an argument, though we have the argument. We don't begin with, uh, with oily words or smooth words. We might not necessarily stick a Bible verse under their nose. But you know what? That whole principle of win them before you win them, understand this, is that there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful. And you know that temptation or trial or difficulty, whatever the case may be, is that there is somebody in one of those countries and they know losing a spouse. They know losing a job. They know cancer. They know that. And you know there's a whole lot of big difference between walking up to somebody and saying, there, there, I know how you feel. Come on, chin up, friend. Versus when I look at a widower, I can grab a hand, I can stroke it, and I can mean it. I can say,
1: boy, I sure know how you
0: feel. And I'm telling you right now is that I don't care what kind of blood goes through their veins or what color their skin is or whatever the case may be, is that somebody in this room or somebody that you know is that you've got the power, you've been given the authority. And all of a sudden, that thing, that bad thing, that horrible thing that happened to me is in such a waste now because we know that all things... Work together for good. To them that love God. To them who are called according to their purpose. I'm simply saying this, is that please realize, is that God brings purpose to those things. If we'll have the faith and the love and the patience to do it and just say, God, what would you do with this? Mm -hmm. If you're patient and you stay faithful, you're you're that smooth stone in your right place, he'll say, I'll show you. But I got to prepare you.
1: I got to prepare you. Preacher.